the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead." Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloak on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Please be seated. Good morning, my dear church, and how fitting it is on this Communion Sunday to be looking at the Passover passage. There's so much here that we could talk about. Unfortunately, we have to narrow our view to just a few things, but I hope that it will be useful for you as you continue to reflect on these passages and in the reading plan and, and obviously in our lives with the Lord. And it's funny, so... Spoiler alert, I'm, I'm, my application is going to come to a place of talking about resting in the Lord. And I know I was talking with uh, Reba and Karen about this before service, um, just how exhausted I am. It's funny that I'm talking about resting in the Lord. It was a long weekend, and I know it was a long weekend for a lot of us with homecoming activities and reunions and 
and it's harvest season, and so there's just some of us are moving, and, and there's just a lot of things going on. So, um, I, hopefully, this will be a good word for myself, and hopefully for the rest of you as well. And we've seen over these last few, or really last week, as we talked about the plagues in the last few chapters of Exodus, that during each of these devastating plagues of judgment on Egypt uh, and her false gods, Pharaoh relents, right? He goes, oh, okay, well, actually, you can leave because there's too many gnats or whatever it is that, that uh, the Lord is doing. And he says the Israelites can go. But then after the plague ceases, by the mercy of God, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And occasionally the text says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Occasionally it says that the Lord is the one doing the hardening. So finally, the Lord tells Moses, and this takes place in chapter 11, the Lord tells Moses to warn Pharaoh that something worse is coming. A plague that cannot be reversed. It cannot be halted once it's begun. The death of the firstborn of Egypt. And the Lord instructs his people to take innocent male lambs and slaughter them and to paint their blood on the doorposts and on the lintels so that the destroyer or the angel of death or the power of death would pass over their homes. And the Israelites obey. Their firstborn sons are spared. But Pharaoh does not. And he loses his son and his heir along with many or most of the Egyptians. This tenth and final plague is terrible. Its target is Pharaoh, his family, who considered themselves gods. But it turns out that they were only human after all. And so Pharaoh finally, heart-achingly, lets God's people go. You know, I've read this story countless times, and those of us who have grown up in church or, or, or been around church things, the Passover is a story that, that we've heard frequently, we read frequently, they've made movies about it. I don't know if you're like me, but as I read this story and other stories in the Bible, but this one especially, I, and even as I was studying for this morning, I read these verses and I wish that Pharaoh would change his mind. You know, I think to myself, and it's, it's a fanciful thing, but I think to myself, maybe this time, right? While I'm reading, actually, it's going to go another way. Pharaoh's heart will change. The Egyptians will go with the Israelites to the promised land. But Pharaoh never changes his mind. He can't, right? It's locked on the page. The story always ends the same way. It's not all bad. There's deliverance for God's people. There's weeping, gnashing of teeth for those who refuse to obey. And we find here a terrible but accurate depiction of human beings entrapped and blinded in their sin apart from the mercy of Christ. It's sobering. It's a sobering passage. And this story has long been precious to Christians because it was precious to Jesus himself. He chose the Passover meal to institute communion. We can read about that in the Gospels. After Jesus' death and resurrection, as the apostles continued to reflect on these things, and it was revealed to them that it wasn't that our salvation in Jesus was like the Passover and the Exodus. It was actually the other way around, that the Passover and Exodus were previews or foreshadowings of what God would do through his Messiah. So our single-sentence sermon summary this morning is this. It's time to rest in the finished work of Jesus. It's time to rest 
and the finished work of Jesus. So what I'd like to do, it's a fairly simple, think simple structure, but I want to put before you this morning a few of the clues, right? So Passover is a foreshadowing or preview of, of the gospel. And so what are some of the things that we see? What does it tell us about what the good news is going to be? And there's many of these, uh, but I'm only going to talk about three of them. <laughs> and those are time, lamb, and plunder are our three uh, clue words today. Time, lamb, and plunder. So I want to talk about those three clues, then I want to offer you one way in which we can, we can respond and obey, to this, obey this passage, uh, which is to rest in the finished work of Jesus, and, and I'll talk a bit more about that towards the end. But first, Passover gives us a clue about time. I think part of what it's telling us is that time is a gift, that time is something that is given to us by God. Many of us, and all of us from time to time, uh, consider time to be an enemy or a thief. Every time somebody reminds me that I'm now only two years away from 30, it's hard not to feel like time is an enemy. Maybe some of you can relate. (laughs) But I think that Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 is one of, and there are many, but it's one of the passages where the Bible tells us that time is actually created for us, that time is something that is given to us that in Jesus' time can actually be friendly. Verses 1 and 2 say, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, it's interesting, right? Because years, they're not really real, right? I mean, they're real because the agricultural cycle goes through and the seasons go through, right? So there's a cycle that's happening, but we decided that you know, one of those things is called a year, right? So we, we create these units of time, they tell us what our priorities are, and they form us in different ways. The Passover was intended to, to mark the beginning of a new time for the Jewish people, a new era. Forever afterward, God's people were supposed to look back on this event and remember that the night of the Passover was one of those times when everything changed, a hinge that history turned on. And to this day, next spring, when Jewish families gather together for the Passover meal, the youngest member who can speak will begin the evening by asking the question, why is tonight different than all other nights? Our calendars tell us what time it is and what to do with that time, right? You go to a desert island, don't take a calendar with you. You'll vaguely know, well, I guess if it's a desert island, they won't really have seasons. So you, you, you will eventually drift off from the rest of the world, right? And this happens in movies or when kids, or that poor Indonesian kid that was adrift at sea for 50 days. And, they, and you know, and I'm sure if they pulled him up, it's like, hey, it's your birthday. And he'd be like, I have no idea that it's my birthday. I don't care that it's my birthday. Will you please rescue me off this raft? So our calendars tell us what to do with with the time, birthdays, anniversaries, the first day of school, the various seasons of sports and hunting, election years, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know, it goes on and on and on. If it's homecoming weekend, like it was for a lot of us this past weekend, then that means that it's time to do certain things, right? There are rituals. We don't call them that, but that's what they are. There are rituals, there are feasts, there are tasks to be undertaken um, to honor our community and our shared history, right? Like, that's, that means it's time. It's time to do those things. 
And we skipped these verses in the reading, both because it was a gigantic uh, reading and uh, just because I'm not going to talk very much about it. But if you read Exodus 12, you'll find that scattered throughout the story, there's these little breaks where, where Moses actually gives us, gives us instructions for how to celebrate the Passover after the Israelites have arrived in the Promised Land to mark the time of redemption, right? Time is a central concern of the passage. You'll notice that a lot of the instructions are timed, right? The 10th day, the 14th day, one month, twilight, midnight. I think part of what this is telling us is that we are meant to live our lives in gospel time, if you will. What the Apostle Paul calls the age to come or the new age. We are to mark our time in light of what Jesus has done. We look back on the crucifixion and resurrection as the time when everything changed. We mark our lives in relation to that. We mark our lives in relation to how God has made it uh, real and has manifested the gospel in our lives. Jesus, as Christians, Jesus is the central figure and event of each of our lives as the Passover was intended to be for the Israelites. So that's our first clue, time. The second is lamb. I think the idea here, what this clue is telling us, is that we are saved, we will be saved by another's righteousness. 21 through 23 says, Moses called all the elders of Israel, said to them, go, choose your lambs, and kill them. Take a bunch of hyssop, that's a type of plant, dip it in the blood in the basin, paint your doorposts and your lintels with the blood. Don't leave the house while this is happening. The Lord will strike the Egyptians, but when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over. That's where the name comes from. The Lord will pass over and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. We learn a lot here. The fact that the Israelites are told to kill a lamb tells us that this final plague is far different from the others. In fact, Israel was exempt from the first nine plagues, right? And it talks about how in the plague of darkness or these other things that are happening, they'll say now there were, you know, uh, I'm forgetting what the plagues were. Frogs. There were frogs everywhere except where the Israelites were, right? Or there was darkness everywhere except in the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. This tells us that they are not exempt from this plague. This plague is different. This plague is bigger. This plague maybe has a more cosmic scale than just what's happening right now in Egypt with the Israelites. Both the Egyptians and the Israelites must face the reality of death, as must we all. No one is exempt from that. This final plague declares that while death is powerful, it's universal, no one escapes from it, it is still under the rule and might of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Death comes exactly when he calls it. Now, the Lord is king over death, which means he can deliver us from it, right? And that's really what this story, I think, most deeply is about. He provides a way of safety, open to any who will heed his word, the blood of an innocent lamb. Now, there's nothing magical about blood. The book of Hebrews tells us that, right? It's not about the blood itself. It's about the obedience that the blood represents, right? The faith that they had in the word of God that they wiped the blood on their doors. 
And the blood on the doorposts didn't work because of the Israelites, because they were so good or they were, you know, whatever, very righteous people. It worked because they had done what God said. God told them, here's what you do, right? And they did it. He was recognizing their obedience. He will rescue them. He'll do all the work. All they have to do is say yes in obedience and faith. The truth is, we cannot free ourselves from slavery to evil, right? When we like to think that we can, um, I think especially as Americans, you know, there's no problem that's not big enough, that's too big. There's no problem that's too big for us to scale, right? We can climb the mountain, dam the rivers, and, you know, whatever else, make corn that can grow on Mars, or, uh, you know, I don't know, all kinds of things, right? There's problems and we fix them. We cannot free ourselves from slavery to evil. We cannot free ourselves from the bondage of death. They're trying, you know, we'll stay tuned, but I'm pretty sure we're not gonna be able to free ourselves from the bondage of death. We do bad things. If you don't think you do bad things, ask somebody else, they'll tell you the bad things that you do. We form destructive habits of thought, of action. We can't change our own hearts. Often when we try to do something good, it goes badly. This sin wreaks destruction in our lives now, erodes our eternal life with God. But he has provided a way out of that, a way to freedom. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, blameless, spotless, the seal of a new agreement, a new covenant between humankind and God. If you can, if you have physical Bibles or a phone app, turn to John chapter 19, Gospel of John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. We'll only read two verses, so if you have to grab a Bible, it's probably not worth it. But if it's open already, turn there. So John chapter 19, and all through the Gospel of John, this isn't a sermon on the Gospel of John, so I'll keep this bit brief, but all through the Gospel of John, we see these these, um, hints and clues that John very much wants us to see uh, that Jesus is fulfilling, not just the Passover story, but, but all of Scripture. So Jesus, in John chapter 19, 28, he is on the cross. The soldiers have gambled away his clothing. These different things are going on. And it says, after this, at the very end, at the utter extremity of his life, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, text doesn't tell us which scripture, my hunch is that John means the entire thing, to fulfill the entire scripture, he says, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The hyssop plant makes its second to last appearance in the Bible here in John chapter 19. Hebrews mentions it, and that's the very last one. Hyssop's first appearance is in Exodus chapter 12, where God tells the people of Israel to take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, and paint their doors and lintels with the blood of a slain lamb. There happens to be a hyssop branch nearby the cross of Jesus. 
That is no accident. The new and better Passover was happening as Jesus died. Jesus' blood was being shed to shield his people from the wrath of God, the deathly power of evil. Moses told the Israelites to slaughter blameless lambs and paint their doors with its blood so that the destroyer would pass over and so that they could be rescued through the deep and lethal waters away from their enemies. Jesus, the night before he died, celebrated the Passover with his friends, what we remember now as communion, and he said that the new covenant was secured in his blood. He would part the ocean of death so that we all may flee to God's mountain of safety. As Jesus hung on the cross, he knew what time it was. He knew that all the scripture was being fulfilled in him, and he declared that it is finished. It is accomplished. Passover is a familiar story for many of us. But we shouldn't. I think it's so familiar that we forget that there are actually some quite disturbing aspects uh, to this story and to many stories in the Bible. I think it's a bit of a detour, but I am convicted that I would be remiss to preach this passage without acknowledging that a major aspect of what we're reading is God killing a bunch of people. You know, and part of the reason why is as I was thinking about this, growing up, and it's none of your faults, right? I realize I'm preaching to many of my former Sunday school teachers. But growing up, right, you'd sit and you'd listen to these stories, and I would go, huh, so then he killed everybody. <laughs> and, or, you know, we have, uh, and again, no offense meant Noah's Ark painted on the nursery wall. And eventually you're old enough, right, that you're, oh, yeah, the animals are fun, but didn't God drown everybody else on earth in that story? <clears throat> so I know that I struggled a lot with this sort of thing growing up, and some of you might. I don't know. But how do we reconcile the good news of Jesus that is for all the people with how God deals with the Egyptians and rescues his people in this passage? That's a huge question. It probably deserves its own very uh, sad sermon, but I want to just touch on it and really open the door to further discussion. And I want to encourage you as a pastoral side note, if this sort of thing is something that you resonate with or struggle with, please, please come and talk to Clayton and I. Not that we have any answers, but... I think that it's good and right to to talk about these things uh, and to wrestle with them. But I want to make three quick points about really the perceived brutality of the Lord in this passage. First, this is going to sound bad, but I think it's true. Within the context of this story, I don't think we're meant to empathize with the Egyptians, right? And that cuts against the grain of our sensibilities, right? Um, But I I think that's a good thing, and it sounds harsh, but I don't think that was on the minds of, of Moses and the, and the people who, who retained this story that we were supposed to feel badly for the Egyptians. In our culture, we have lots of stories that, that seek to humanize the villain. And I think that there is actually something good and Christ-like there, right? Um, you think about Darth Vader. Hopefully most of us know who that is, whether you've seen the films or not, right? Wears a helmet, this big, you know, machine of murder, you know, flaying people with his uh, laser sword. But eventually... Darth Vader takes his helmet off, right? And we find out, oh, he's actually a man. He's got a weird egg head, but he's a man. <laughs> Nonetheless, and there's a little bit of redemption there with his son, and we feel badly for him, and we ought to, right? It's a sad story. He's uh, still a murderer and a monster, but, you know, we do feel kind of bad for him. Pharaoh never takes his helmet off, so to speak, right? That was not part of how this story is structured here. And again, 
but that feels very strange to us, but we're not meant to victimize the Egyptians in this story. He represents the oppressive and arrogant empire. Now, some interpreters see the death of the firstborn as retribution for what the Egyptians did to the Israelites back in chapter 1 when Pharaoh ordered all the firstborn males to be killed. I think there is something to that. But we also have to remember that this didn't have to happen. Pharaoh, presumably, could have made different decisions, right? Any of the Egyptians, and we don't know, maybe they did, could have also painted their doors with blood. It wasn't inevitable. It's a Christian impulse to embrace the enemy, I think. God does that with us. But that's not where the center of gravity for this passage is, as strange as that may feel. However, I think it's equally mistaken to elevate the Israelites, right? That, oh, they're very special. They're the good guys in the story. It's like, well, it's, it's slightly more complicated than that. And it brings me to my second point, is that God does not draw a distinction between the Israelites and Egyptians because the Israelites are the good guys, <laughs> because the Israelites are righteous. Any of the Egyptians could have obeyed. Maybe they did. That would be a happy surprise, I think, in the end, to find out that some of them did or many of them did. But the whole point is that everyone is equally eligible for destruction, right? That's part of the, if you will, the moral of the story, which is why the blood of an innocent lamb was necessary at all. Everyone is under the shadow of death. Everyone's sin is lethal. And thirdly, we need to remember the larger story that Passover is taking place within. In Exodus chapter 6, before the plagues even start, the Lord explains to Moses what he's going to do to Egypt and, more importantly, why. He says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. The Lord makes this promise, this declaration, at least 28 times in the Bible, beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation. I will be your people and you will be my God. It is his ultimate promise, his pledge to all mankind, the Lord's statement of faith, if you will, like that's what he's going to do. We will be his people, he will be our God. It can seem sometimes that there's a big shift in God's personality between the Old and the New Testaments. I think that, and hopefully we'll see that as we study Exodus, God's desire has always been to dwell with people. That's always been what he's after, right? But our sin and sinfulness brings out, requires, demands his righteous response. In a similar way that the stain cannot withstand the bleach that darkness vanishes when you turn the lights on, our sinfulness causes a reaction of his holiness, the bush burns when you light it on fire. That's the bad news. I think that's where many people get hung up on a lot of these Bible stories. But that's not the end. That's not the whole picture, right? There's a whole lot more after the book of Exodus going on here. Let's not forget that at the beginning of all this, Moses saw a bush that was on fire but was not consumed. Perhaps God made the bush a little like the fire. Perhaps he made the fire a little like the bush. I don't know. Either way, from the moment Exodus begins, we're told that God is making a way for holiness to burn, but to not consume. For God to dwell, but to not destroy. I don't know why the final plague had to be what it was. I don't know if we, have, we can ever have an answer to that. 
But I think we can know that God's deepest desire was not for the firstborn to die. He wouldn't have provided a way out if that were true. And we know that when the time was ready, he sent his own firstborn to die in place of all of us. So we have to end the detour there, although there is more to be said. But I have one more gospel clue that I want to share with you. The first was time, the second was lamb, and the third is plunder, which is a word we don't often use uh, a lot. And uh, it basically means the stuff you get to take after you've defeated your enemy in battle. Um, I think the main idea here with plunder is that God's grace will supply our every need. And right there at the end of the passage that we read in 33, or 34 through 36, it says, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Now, we all know, or those of us familiar with the Bible know, that in just a few short chapters, the Israelites are going to get up to a great deal of fighting and plundering and and waging war on on, on different people. But here in Exodus 12, in the midst of their great deliverance, in the midst of the story that sets the frame for all the other stories of God's deliverance, they do absolutely no fighting, but they still get the plunder. The grace or favor of God working in the hearts of the Egyptians made it so that God's people had to do nothing but ask. Nobody else needed to die on the Israelites' way out of Egypt. A few more did because of Pharaoh's final, last change of heart where he decided to try and pursue the people into the Red Sea. And this plunder clue tells us that in Jesus, all our needs, material and spiritual, are met. If the Israelites got to plunder the Egyptians by the grace of God, how much greater is our inheritance in Jesus who willingly gives us of his own vast treasuries? The generous grace of God in Jesus causes us to stop and think about what kind of world we're actually living in, right? Because often the news or the way that our economy works or just the way that our attitudes are is that we tend to think that this world is an uncaring place, the resources are scarce, and that we have to fight in order to stay alive and to provide for our families, right? But I think that the generous grace of God wants us to hit the pause button on that thought and to actually Stop and think, is that the way that this world really is? Or is Jesus correct in saying that we don't have to be anxious about what we're going to wear or what we're going to eat? Is this a place where Jesus can actually cause the very hands of our enemies to hand over blessing to us? So I want to bring these three clues together and offer one way to respond to the scripture. Time is a gift. We are saved by another's righteousness, and God's grace will provide our every need. Later on in Exodus, the Lord commands that Passover be made a day of Sabbath, of rest for God's people. And my exhortation, church, is that we also would rest in the finished work of Jesus. And this is important for us to hear because I think each of us in different ways struggles with this. Americans in general are very busy people. As I said at the beginning, this was a busy weekend for me. It's a busy season for many of us. There's just a lot going on. And now that we have phones with apps, even our spare time and the time that we normally sit just sitting and thinking about ourselves or our life is now consumed with doing something else, we are incredibly 
busy people. Some of that busyness is good, some of it is bad. We take on too much, we feel responsible for too much, we attempt to control too much, and in the end, we try to claim a righteousness from our own doing. What's pressing on your mind this morning, right? It's nearly 11.30. I'm very aware of that. It's pressing on my mind that I need to stop, I need to end the sermon. But what's pressing on your minds this morning is you think, yeah, I've got to do that today. Oh, I've got so much to do tomorrow, school and work and all this sorts of things, right? What's pressing on our minds? Or the things that you habitually don't do, but for a long time have felt that you should. And that list, for a lot of us, is probably very long. The things we should be eating, the things we should not be eating, books that sit unread, emails. You know, some of you, Caleb, my brother, isn't here, so I'll make fun of him. But he, his email app has like 15,000 unread messages on it. I mean, he's resting in the Lord. He didn't even need to be here. He doesn't read it. He doesn't read it. Those things that come up in our minds, they're probably important, right? They're probably mostly important. But it may turn out, church, that they're not all actually necessary. And Jesus told us that it is finished, that his death has saved us. All of the necessary things have already been done. We would do well to dwell on that. All the necessary things have already been done. Our own discipline, planning, determination, duty, and obedience will not save you or anyone else. Resting in the Lord can mean dedicating a day to Sabbath rest, which I know is a practice that many of us at Calvary already do, and I commend you for that and urge you to to continue. I think it's something that we all ought to think about doing, is actually picking a day and setting it aside for the things of God and the things that replenish our spirits. But I think that rest in the Lord also has to be a heart posture from which we do our work, from which we work in all things. Many of the things on our to-do lists may not actually need to be done. Man, we feel like we need to do them, but they may not actually need to be done, and we have an opportunity to leave them at the foot of the cross this morning. I can't tell you what to set aside, right? I could talk about my own life, but, you know, I can't tell you what you need to just not do. I'm not the judge. But Jesus is the judge, and he's telling us the time of striving and strife is over. We don't have to fight for survival. We're saved. He will provide all of our needs. Now, we ought not be irresponsible in Jesus' name, right? And the New Testament speaks to that. The folks who just sat and waited for Jesus to come and take them, you know, if you don't ever work for your food, then he'll be there to take you sooner rather than later. But we're not supposed to be irresponsible in Jesus' name. If we've made promises, we have to fulfill them. If people are counting on us, then we have to follow through. But in the freedom of Christ, we are the masters of our schedule, church, not the other way around. We are no longer slaves. Let us live like that's true, church. And I mentioned at the beginning, this is my final thought here, that when I read this story, when I read the story, I wish that Pharaoh would change his mind, that the Egyptians would go with the Israelites to the promised land. And as I was thinking about these things, um, the Lord brought something to my mind that I I'm glad that he did because I I found it very powerful and helpful. We don't know why the Lord does what he does when he does it, right? Why couldn't he have just saved them all then? Nobody knows the answer to that but him. But we, we can be confident that our destruction is not what he desires. It turns out that the Lord promised through the prophet Isaiah that one day the minds of the Egyptians will change. They will follow 
Israel to the promised land. Isaiah 19 says, and the Lord will strike Egypt. It's the same word in Exodus, striking and healing, and they will turn to the Lord. He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. If you remember Assyria, our dreadful friends from the Jonah series, a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. What wonders the Lord does and promises on our behalf, people of God. All we have to do is receive it, say yes to him in faith and obedience. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for myself and for all of us is that we would find rest in the finished work of Jesus. In his name, amen.